Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Thank you for joining us today. This is now the post-Mother's Day episode, so we can talk about what Mother's Day was or wasn't, or avoid it altogether. I don't know. Katie, what is happening in Iowa these days? It is cold. It is rainy. It is very windy. Um, I turned the furnace back on. It's the middle of May, and our furnace is running. Well, if you need it, you need it, right? Yeah. Mother's Day weekend, Saturday, we went to the Devonian Fossil Park in Rockford, Iowa, which is a county park that is full. It's several hundred acres of fossils that you can collect and take home with you. Uh, Little seashells and snails and shit and restored prairie and uh, historic brick kilns. Okay, so I have to know how they ended up being that many fossils all in one place. Well, as even a girl child refused to believe, Iowa was once an ocean. And apparently this was a very rich deposit. And then when they started um, with the the brick kiln situation, they dug up a shitload of gravel. And in all that gravel, they found lots of fossils. There you go. So go check it out. So they're, yeah, they're literally just on the surface of the ground at this park which was cool as hell. Um, The kids hung out for quite a bit longer than I thought they would. There's a nice little nature center. Um, I should have put on more sunblock on myself, as usual. Got the kids good, forgot myself. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. That happens. Or that one spot that you missed, right? Yeah, there's always that one spot. Sunday has been a delightful day of napping and getting coffee with friends and getting groceries with nobody, which Ooh. is nice. And uh, Almost like a vacation. And Jim, yeah, Jim bravely just took both kids to go get bales for the cows so that I can pay bills without help. After yet another lengthy discussion with the children about why we pay bills and what is money and why is money a thing and why do we have to work and apparently yelling, eat the rich and... Because capitalism is a dumpster fire was not really enough of an answer for my children. Right. So if anybody can explain explain to my five-year-old and six-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. And taxes and employment and, and they don't get it because mommy works at home. So does mommy even have a job? Who knows? Yeah. Maybe mommy just watches YouTube all day. We don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's hard to explain to kids what happens on the inside of the, when you're <laughs> just on a computer, right? Doing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the girl child wanted to know if we were going to take her money to pay the bills. And I was trying to explain that, no, she doesn't have to pay bills yet because she's six, but she should start saving because it'll happen sooner than she thinks it will. And uh, yeah, it's a whole <laughs> went, so, in, went in a spiral I, of all the things yeah. to tell kids about money. Like, it's really important to teach kids about money, but I haven't found anything about how to teach them about why money is a thing. Or, 
especially when you get into like credit cards and Venmo and like, you know, our kids know that you can just buy stuff on the internet, but that's even more of a hard concept to explain than I take this piece, piece of green or whatever color they are in Canada paper yeah, and all different give it colors. to somebody and then they give me something. Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And why are the paper yeah. ones worth more than the metal ones and all that? Yeah, all that stuff. And why are the little metal ones worth more than the, some of the bigger metal ones? I don't know. I, I don't know, kid. I, there are things we don't learn. So, I don't know. And fortunately, I have the kind of children who will not take, I don't know, as an answer. I mean, I, I think generally that's a good trait, but right now it's kind of annoying. Yeah, because when some days you just want to sit down is, and pay know. the bills. <laughs> Yeah, just just like I appreciate that you want to help, but I don't know how helpful you're going to be with paying the propane bill, kid. Yeah. So go away. But I love you and I want you to help, but not right now. Yeah, not with this. Yeah. Anyway, how's Mother's Day been on your end, Darlene? Oh, it's been fine. Nothing too exciting. The one bonus of having older kids is that um, I can kind of just check out if that's what I wanted to do and today that was how I was feeling so it was sunny cool but I put on layers and I went and sat outside sometimes in my hammock sometimes in my porch chair in the sun read my book and didn't actually talk to too many people which I guess for today was what I needed so yeah it was different than other years um you know, when my kids were little and as you know, this time of year is really busy on the farm. So, I mean, there's been a lot of planting going on this week. Um, corn has gone in, soybeans are going in as we speak, um, rolling, more rock picking, all that kind of stuff is going on. So usually that for me, since I don't do a lot, any slash any um, tractor work, that would mean me in the house alone with lots of children. But now that they're older, some of them are helping and some of those things we're actually getting other people to do because rather than invest in new planting equipment, we've actually made the decision to get custom operators to do some of that planting work and not replace old equipment or keep the old equipment around but, but let other people do some of that planting work for us because as most farmers know, planting only happens a few days a year and we don't have a ton of acreage in order to justify buying brand new expensive equipment or even used expensive equipment. So yeah, so yeah, it was different than it has been before, but it was good. And we went out for lunch, so that was nice as well. I didn't have to cook and I don't know what they're having for supper, but I'm not making it. So it's also not my job today. Yeah, I don't know what we're having for supper either. And it probably still is my job today because Jim already fed the kids today so um yeah they're not at the go to the kitchen yeah. and make yourself supper stage yet that's okay you'll get there uh, they are but <laughs> yeah you know as as much as i try to be real chill about what they eat and division of responsibility and that i cannot willingly allow them to just eat, you know, Cool Ranch Doritos and Nutella for supper, sure, which is yeah. probably about where they would be. Yeah, yeah, or what, which, yeah, whatever they could reach. Yeah, 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 which is pretty much anything. We have a lot of step stools. There you go. Yeah, they can find so, it all. Yeah, yeah. and uh, go into our interview for this week. Yeah, I suppose we should. 
So today we're excited to be talking to Shelby Smith, who is joining us from Iowa, just like Katie. Uh, before I start, how far apart do you guys live? Is this, uh, we haven't actually done the geography. <laughs> Shelby, you're in Des Moines. Correct? No, I'm in Ames. Oh, okay. Shelby lives in my hometown then. Um, okay. It's about three hours. Yeah. Got it. Um, so Shelby, we start each of the interviews that we do with the same questions. So this is a way to introduce yourself to our guests. So we always ask, what are you growing? So this can cover crops and livestock for farmers, but also covers families, businesses, and lots of other stuff. So Shelby, what are you growing? I am currently growing multiple things. Uh, the main livestock, as it were, are crickets. And I'm also growing multiple businesses all at once. So I am the founder and owner of Jim and Eat Crickets, and we produce sustainable alternative protein snacks from farm-raised crickets, which I already mentioned that I'm raising. Uh, we have three different product lines, roasted crickets, cricket bars, and 100% cricket powder. Uh, while I'm doing that, I'm also helping my boyfriend grow his landscaping business. And then um, we are also, as if we needed another project on top of all of that, we are renovating a 140-year-old building in a tiny town about half an hour from Ames here called Collins, Iowa, in the southeast corner of Story County. Um, and we call that officially the 214 Main Project. So many things we are growing right now that is a lot of different things so usually we ask the the breed of livestock if people are talking about livestock is there a certain breed of crickets that yes you and that is a great question and that's something i think a lot of people overlook you know here in iowa we're, we're really used to seeing especially in the fall you know the big black crickets that come into your garage or to your basement um i know there's a lot of people with a lot of fears around those because they may have had a parent or a sibling or someone that uh terrorized with them terrorized them with those crickets growing up. So those are actually the field cricket. That's the common name. I don't know the scientific name of that breed in particular, but that is not the breed that I raise. I raise a cated domesticus, which is the common house cricket. So that is rather than those big black crickets, like I said, that we're so used to seeing here in the Midwest uh, in the fall time in, in particular, these are little brown crickets that if you've ever had some sort of an exotic pet or something that needs to be live fed insects, so think like bearded dragons, chameleons, different kinds of frogs, different kinds of toads, hedgehogs, like there's a whole variety of things that have to be live fed uh, and you need to buy those crickets from the pet store. These are probably one of those crickets that you've seen. These are very common in pet stores. It's usually Acada domesticus, which like I said, common house cricket or the banded cricket are typically the ones that you'll find commercially raised for live feeders. I personally chose the house cricket because when I was looking at different breeds that were viable for something like this, uh, everything I found said that banded crickets bite. And so I didn't want anything to do with millions of crickets that were going to potentially bite me. Um, I, the only crickets that I've ever had bite me that I raise are the little baby pinheads. And I say in their defense, they're trying to figure out if I'm food or water because they are, are set to double in size every three days for the first two weeks of their life. So anything food and water or anything they think might be food and water, they are gonna be latching on to. 
So yes, there are, there are. They're just testing out anything that they come in contact with, right? Anything, anything and everything, you know, at that point, you know, sustenance, it doesn't matter where it comes from. They just need it. Uh, but so yeah, back to your question about the breeds, there's actually an estimated a thousand or so different breeds different species. I'm very non-scientific in my terms, I think. I got yelled at one time for family was not the correct classification of whatever I was saying. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I don't speak science very well. Um, your, your Latin was... Uh, yes, Latin. it was. Um, and so uh, there's about a thousand different kinds of crickets across the world. Are there multiple varieties that are good for eating? There are a lot of different ones that, that get eaten. Um, it varies regionally across the world. Again, Acada domesticus is one of the more common ones. Um, I believe there's a, a Jamaican cricket that is fairly commonly eaten in parts of Asia as well. Um, it, I think it, it all depends. I, the way that I tell people to think of edible insects as a whole because there's about 2,000 different species of insects that are documented to be eaten throughout the world. Most of them foraged. Uh, majority of edible insects are like a foraged delicacy. So think of something seasonal like here in the Midwest, morel mushrooms. You know, those are not cultivated. Those have to be hunted. They're very seasonal delicacy sort of thing. That's the way many edible insects are. If was it 2020, I believe, when the brood X emergence of the cicada was up and down the East Coast. That was a really awesome kind of watershed moment for the whole edible insect industry because there were, you know, Michelin star chefs, uh, restaurants all over the place, that they were actually foraging those insects and turning them into dishes. And, uh, and from what I've heard, they were pretty tasty. So uh, most edible insects come from a foraged source. There's a few that are obviously commercially raised. Crickets are the most common. Mealworms are another one. Um, black soldier fly larvae are being raised commercially as well, but typically those are, are not for human consumption. Those go into feed. Um, but, you know, going back to the whole picture of the edible insect market and what I would say probably the difference in, in species for crickets is think of it like different varieties of, um, I don't know, fruit maybe, or some classification of food that you would never expect a kiwi to taste like a strawberry. You know, a mealworm's not going to taste like a cricket, which is not going to taste like a cicada. There's, it, it's, it's different. Um, or maybe a closer relative that might be a better example would be lobster doesn't really taste like shrimp, doesn't really taste like crab. They're all somewhat similar. Um, but there's just a different flavor profile for all of them. Arlene, can we just circle back around to what it would be like if our cattle doubled in size every three days? <laughs> like, that's terrifying. <laughs> that's really, really scary. <laughs> not, not down for that. Um, so Shelby, first question, how loud is it in your cricket raising? Yeah, buttons? good question. I actually get that question a lot. Um, so believe it or not, for the majority of the life cycle, so our crickets under controlled conditions, it's a very steady, very predictable 42 to 40, 
45 day life cycle. So we are talking from hatch to fully grown, ready to harvest. It's 42 to 45 days. Um, majority of that time, I would say 35 of those days, that barn is completely silent. Um, the only thing that you hear as they start to get larger, more active, I call it their hungry teenager phase where you feed them and two seconds later you're like, did I just feed you or you know, did I forget? Uh, because they are just consuming that quickly. It sounds like it's raining in the barn because you know they're skittering around so much, which I think if someone does not like bugs, that would be quite unnerving, but you know, it just, I'm used to it at this point. Um, but so not until about day 35-ish do the males start chirping. So it's actually only the male crickets that chirp and it's only when they are ready to breed and are trying to attract a female. So that's their, their mating call. It's called stridulation. Many people think it's the rubbing together of the legs, but it's actually not. It's the rubbing of the wings. It's like a serrated surface that they, you know, they rub the wing on top of the serrated surface and it generates the chirp. Um, fun fact that I don't know, some people know this, some people don't. There's actually a guy back in the 1800s that figured out a formula for, you know, if you just hear one cricket, which good luck with that in the summer, but if you hear one cricket chirping in the summer, if you count the number of chirps per minute and stick it into this formula, it will give you the temperature. And, and it's like 95% accurate or something like that. Um, so obviously the temperature really, really impacts them. The warmer it is, the faster they chirp. Colder it is, the slower they chirp. Uh, also, the warmer it is, the faster they mature. So if I wanted to turn crickets in 30 days, I could do it. You just have to keep the barn at a warmer temperature. The, we have done it a few times and sometimes in the, in the summer, obviously that happens a little more naturally. We are not relying on uh, external forces to heat things as much. We use the natural heat as much as we can in the summer. Um, but we run into problems if we run it too hot with our really high population densities. Although crickets are cold-blooded animals, when you have a whole bunch of them in one space, the friction, the heat generated with the friction will absolutely blow your mind. Um, so we have to, we, we try to stay off of those upper limits of temperature, even though we can turn them faster, just because it ends up causing more problems for us. So. So what does your daily chore routine look like with your tiny livestock and what, how did you get over the fear that you were going to drop a box full of crickets? Because I'm just picturing trying to, I mean, getting cattle back in a fence is hard enough that I'm just trying to imagine what getting eight bazillion jumping loud creatures back into a small space would be like. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, if I drop them, I consider them free range because like you said, wrangling crickets is not quite the same as wrangling cows. You just... <laughs> They, if they don't want to be found, they're not, and I'm not going to chase them necessarily. And I, I would say that how I got over my fear of dropping the boxes is I've dropped a few and just, it is what it is. <laughs> and, uh, it, it reminds me every time I do it, which is, you know, it occasionally still happens. I'd like to think I've gotten 
a little bit more mindful. Um, but occasionally it still does happen. And I'm reminded each time how frustrating it is when it does happen. But uh, truthfully, when we, when we put the crickets in their bins and on the shelves, we don't take that bin off again until it's time to harvest. So we minimize a little bit of the dropping potential. Uh, more likely the problems become I spill a waterer or, you know, something like that. Miss a waterer and it's completely dried up and they don't have any water for a few days. Like it's more, more common that I would do something like that than I would necessarily uh, drop a box full of crickets and have it go everywhere. But in the case that it does, those are now free range crickets. So they, I tell them good luck, have a wonderful life. Um, so uh, yeah, daily chores is like any other livestock in that you're checking feed, you're checking water, you're checking conditions. Um, it varies in terms of the amount of time required depending on the part of the life cycle that you're in. When we, so freshly hatched crickets, baby crickets are actually called pinheads. And the reason they're called that is because they are teeny tiny, like the size of a pin head. Um, they, they're tiny. They get everywhere. They get out of everywhere that they're not supposed to be. Like they're just, like I said, they're the only ones that have ever bit me. Uh, so I have a love-hate relationship with them. I, I've taken many of them home with me in my hair because they just, you can't even feel them crawling on you. They're so tiny. So inevitably it just, it is what it is. I, I remember one night I was sitting on my computer in bed and there was a pinhead cricket walking across my computer screen. And I was like, I'm, obviously I brought you home. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So once we put those in there, food, water, put them on the shelf, we don't touch them for 10 days. And the only reason that we touch them after 10 days is to take the top off of them. So we put the top of these big plastic Sterlite 50 gallon totes. We put the top on when we first put pinheads in the bins because pinheads, when they're first hatched, don't have a fully formed exoskeleton. So they, and here's another reason why they're just an absolute pain in the face. Uh, so no fully formed exoskeleton. So you have to have the humidity high enough that they do not dry out because of a too dry atmosphere. But at the same time, you can't have it too humid because if you start to have condensation, hold on, sorry, I gotta pull my sourdough out. We're on that thought though. Hold on, sorry. All right, now we're all good as far as interruptions go. Sorry about it. Um, okay, so other reasons pinheads are just a pain and are probably the biggest struggle of cricket farming in some ways. Um, so you can't have it too humid because if it produces condensation, they will drown in a droplet of water. So it has to be this sweet spot of about 60 to 70% humidity-ish. Um, so rather than having our barn more humid, because we may have different stages, different generations, and as they get older, humidity is a problem, we create microclimates where we just stick the top on them and there's enough condensation, evaporation, all of the things to generate enough humidity that we don't dry them out. 
So after about 10 days, they're definitely going to have a really strong, fully formed exoskeleton. So we're no longer worried about that. So we take the tops off because then as they start to age, they need more airflow. They're starting to produce more waste, all of the things. Um, so, but like I said, for those first 10 days, we don't have to touch them. Then all we have to do is pull the tops off of them. Typically, we don't really need to change food or water for at least another seven, potentially 10 more days. So for the first 20, 21 days of the cricket's life, chores are pretty hands off. And then after that, it's just food and water. Just like any other livestock, it does not have to be on a very set schedule. So, you know, anybody who has a dairy farm knows that you're milking twice a day and you don't miss by any amount of time. Um, crickets are not that finicky. So it's, it's kind of nice in that respect. There's a little bit of flexibility there. Uh, the bulk of the labor honestly comes in harvest and hatching. So harvesting is, is quite labor intense. You need to have more than one person, otherwise it's like frustratingly inefficient. And then the hatching is just labor intense because you have to put bins back together, you need to put food and water in and babies and all of that. Um, but so for the most part, it is, it is pretty, pretty basic food, water, shelter like any other livestock. I would say on average, it's in my current space and I have about 650 square feet and anywhere from a million to two million crickets depending on the time of year. Um, it probably takes 15-ish hours, 10 to 15 hours when you aren't hatch and harvest. When you are hatch and ha harvest, it's more like 20, uh, potentially 25. So do you have various stages of life cycles going at all times or do you kind of, I'm sure you batch them, but like how many stages are you kind of running yes. at once? Well, I set out to split my barn half and half so that they're about three weeks apart. Inevitably, I always screw that up and just <laughs> now I think I'm like probably 80% one age and 20% the other. And so I... It's not a big deal until you start to get to harvest time and you're like, why didn't I stagger that? That was dumb. Um, because the thing about crickets in the wild, crickets only live about five months max. And the reason that they live so much longer than our crickets in the barn is because they're enduring temperature swings up and down. Um, ours have a constant temperature, so they have a constant maturity rate. So... Once they hit that 45 days and they have laid eggs for us and everything, their, you know, their life is essentially over and they will start dying of old age within 48 to 72 hours. So you have a really tight window to get in there and get them out. Um, so that, I, like I said, ideally I stagger my barn half and half so we don't have to worry about it. But so that's one thing. This year, I am actually uh, in process of, of building a new barn, um, which sounds kind of scary, but is super necessary at this stage. And uh, I've applied for, state of Iowa has a, a Iowa Department of Agriculture, I think they launched it last year, their Choose Iowa program. Um, it's a value add grant 
for uh, all sorts of different things in agriculture in Iowa. So I submitted my application for that in December and find out hopefully end of this month, early next month, whether or not I got it. Um, and we can't start can't start the project until we get the yes um, or the no, obviously. But for me, it's worth it to wait to potentially get some of that paid for. But so in that new barn, there will only be one batch at all times. Um, I will keep my old barn as well. The new barn is about a quarter mile south of the old one. Uh, my parents bought another 35 acres and it has, there's two outbuildings on it. One of them only has 14 foot side walls. So my dad claims that that's not big enough for him to put any equipment in, but he said, but you can put crickets in it. So I said, great, I will take it. Uh, so we have all of that planned out, mapped out, priced out. And it's just, we're waiting right now, like I said, to find out on that grant as to whether that's green light go, um, because I am, I'm definitely going to need it this year with the, the way things have expanded on the sales side. So Shelby, how do you harvest crickets? Mm. It's not a, a thing that we have dealt with, <laughs> yes. I guess. I love hearing about livestock that I'm not familiar yes. with. Uh, it's very manual at this point. We've gotten quite efficient, but basically simplified down. What we do is, like I said, we have these big 50 gallon totes within them. We have a whole bunch of different, um, we have a bunch of egg flats. Uh, so just like your regular egg flat that you've seen, those are stacked in there. We have a, we take chicken waterers. That's what we use for a water. It's a chicken waterer, but then we put, um, pea gravel around the the drinking part and we have to do that because otherwise they drown crickets breathe out of their sides there are these holes in their sides called spiracles i say think of them kind of like gills but they're like exact opposite of gills in that if they get in any amount of water even if it looks stupid shallow like they can get out of it it will overwhelm their spiracles and they will drown um so that's a really big pain in the butt but so that's what we used to water them and then we have a couple trays full of feed. And then when the males are chirping and the females are fully developed with a fully developed ovipositor, which they use to lay their eggs, we put a breeding tray in there. And basically it's a, a cake pan full of damp peat moss. And the females will jump up there, lay their eggs in it. We leave them in for 48 hours and then we take them out and we incubate them for 11 days and we have baby crickets. But so when we harvest, we take those bins, down, put them on the floor, take everything out of them. So we knock off all of the, the egg flats where all the crickets are hiding. We take out the water, we take out the food, we take out the breeding trays. And what we are left with at that point are the crickets and the cricket frass. So the cricket frass is just a nice name for poop. And um, it's completely dry, uh, looks and feels a little bit like sand. Uh, so it's actually quite easy to work with. But so then at that point, we um, scoop the frass out. We put clean egg flats into the bin and the crickets crawl up them just because they don't like to be on top of each other. You need to have a certain amount of surface area or you start to toss them out. And so they crawl up those. We shake it off into a clean bin. And then um, the crickets are put in the fridge to slow them down so that they can be transported to my processing facility in Collins, which again is about 25 minutes away. And then they are taken to the killing chambers where they are frozen. So 
we freeze our crickets to kill them, which is probably the most asked question after where do you get your crickets? I was trying to picture how you might, um, you know, captive bolt a, a cricket or what the what the process might be like yes. here. It seemed like it might not. Um, so what do you do with the the frass? I'm picturing, it sounds like your folks farm. I'm I'm picturing your dad like pulling out a manure spreader and you putting like two cubic feet of cricket shit in it and then him spreading for like a foot and then that just being the end of it yeah well so right now I my mom has moved her garden because it's an ongoing uh fight every year about the garden being too close to the field and my dad not knowing when to shut the sprayer off or accidentally not shutting the sprayer off or the winds out of the wrong direction and we have the same argument every single year but we just don't change it kind of thing and so finally the garden was tilled up and moved um this fall so right now all of my cricket poop is diverted to that garden as a soil conditioner um and i think that's going to actually end up turning out really well i also this the spent uh breeding substrate so the spent uh peat moss because we replace that every time because it's cheap enough, there's too many things that can go wrong for us to reuse it kind of a deal. So a mixture of that peat moss and the cricket frass are going on the garden. So if my mom doesn't have a good garden next year, I don't know what to tell her. Um, I don't think it's the sprayer's fault, I guess, is what I'm saying. And um, But yeah, so I, I most of the time spread it on my dad's field. It's it, The cricket barn sits on an acreage that they own about half a mile from, from the main farm. And so I say that the first two or three rows there are pretty well fertilized, but uh, also happen to be right next to gravel. So I think they need all the help they can get. But for the most part, I spread it. I give it away in the fall. I have a few people, a few customers that really like to, to come get it and fall fertilize their gardens, their fall raspberries, that kind of stuff. Uh, at one point I thought I was going to sell it and I'm not saying that I won't in the future. I know there's other cricket farms that that is one of their income streams, but for me, that's just such a drastically different, uh, product mix than food products that like I, I have, it has to be its own separate business and own separate business line for it to make any sort of sense. And right now I just don't have the bandwidth to do it. So yeah, there are some things that you can just toss in the field, right? Yes. <laughs> there's no, uh, no no negative impacts, and it's not like there's huge amounts of it, I'm guessing. It's, well, there's, I mean, there's uh, anywhere between two and seven pounds per pound of crickets that we raise. So there, there can be quite a bit, but like when you're talking, you know, the amount of acres that it, the amount of pounds that it would require per acre kind of deal. Um, and no, there, there's not any no negative impacts to it, the, but the potential positives, there's a lot of interesting research on, you know, with soil health and, and attracting the right bacteria and, and things like that. And again, that stuff is so far down the road that for me to attempt to market it and or do anything that way just doesn't quite make sense yet. So. Yeah. If you were in an urban setting, then that would be a different conversation for sure. For sure. When there's lots of acres around. Yes. (laughs) You can put that one off for now. So what was the inspiration behind getting into crickets in the first place? Yeah. So I, um, I mean, I grew up here. 
on this farm in central Iowa, corn and soybeans is all it's been my whole life. My dad grew up on a dairy farm, um, but my mom said that she would not be a dairy farmer's wife, shall we say? So corn and soybeans it was. Um, and but growing up, I really wanted nothing to do with agriculture. Didn't really want anything to do with the state of Iowa. Luckily, I was pretty good at basketball, so uh, I ended up playing basketball at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Uh, I said in high school I was on a one-way ticket out of this state, and I was not coming back for sure. And um, I ended up graduating from St. Joe's with a finance degree and then got picked up by a program called Sport Changes Life based out of Northern Ireland. And it was a three-part program, so it was part education, uh, part service, so we coached in underprivileged areas, and then we played in the National Professional League. So I was able to, I have my master's in finance from Trinity College in Dublin. It was only supposed to be about an 18 month, um, 18 month program to get your master's and do all of that. But I absolutely fell in love with the team that I was playing with, loved Ireland, wanted to stick around for a while. So I went looking for a job and wound up on a trading desk, brand new trading desk for a Canadian bank in Dublin. I was their first risk intern and about three months later, I had five interns of my own. And then about three more months later, I was moved into a junior trading position. So I traded equity derivatives for that Canadian bank for about three and a half years before I figured out I did not want to do that. Uh, really didn't, didn't want to do finance. Wasn't my thing, even though I had multiple degrees in it. And um, so I quit and I moved back to the family farm that I said I would never come back to and did not really have a plan um, other than, you know, I moved back on October 1st and I said I'd help my dad with harvest. So I learned to drive the tractor on the day that I got back. I traveled for 26 hours. And if this is not like the most farmer story ever, um, 26 hour travel between layovers and everything else, it is eight o'clock at night, it is dark, I walk in the house, I drop my bags, my dad's like, all right, let's go move corn. And I was like, oh, great, don't know how to do any of this, but yeah, let's do it. So went over to the bin site, which is about a mile away from our house, bin site, learned how to drive the tractor, unload the wagons, all of the things in like half an hour. And my dad's like, you got it? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm going to need a refresh of that in the morning for sure. And then uh, the next day, he threw me in the grain cart because, you know, I just learned how to drive the tractor. So let's try and move and catch things at the same time and not spill corn all over the place. Anyways, um, so I helped him that harvest, ended up surviving. And by the time we got everything in the shed cleaned up, ready for winter, you know, my dad and I started having conversations about what I was going to do moving forward. He said, you know, I can teach you to do this if you want, uh, but you don't have to. You can find some sort of a niche market if you'd like, and, you know, we'll help you get started. And fast forward a few months, it was 1st of January of 2018. I found an article about a woman out in uh, Keystone, Iowa, that was raising crickets for human consumption. This was a 2015 Des Moines Register article, and I sent it to my parents, and I was like, well, I think I can do this. And they were like, well, we've seen weirder things go, you know, do some research and come back to us. And so uh, 10 days later, I bought my first 10,000 crickets because I couldn't really find good resources on 
you know, how to do it. So I was like, well, I'll just figure this out as we go. 10 days later, 10,000 crickets, had not even eaten my first cricket yet. Didn't eat that for a couple days later, kind of a deal. And uh, then I had to figure out where I was gonna, you know, sell whatever I was gonna produce and um, applied to the Ames Farmer's Market and they let me in. And uh, so for the next, from January to May, you know, in retrospect, like knowing what I know now, I don't know if I would have been like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, I had to learn how to raise crickets. I had to learn how to cook with crickets. I had to learn how to like package them to be sold. Like it was just, it's a miracle. I'm sitting here today still talking about it. Let's put it that way. But I suppose it's a good example of just, you know, minimum viable product. Just get it out there and figure it out as you go. Cause that is exactly what I did. So yeah, that is a lot of learning in a very short amount yes. of time. Plus even just the regulations and paperwork and all the admin side of each of those steps. Too, exactly. Right? So like I said, knowing what I know now, maybe wouldn't have been so gung ho about it, but you know, whatever. Yeah. Clearly you're someone who jumps in with yes. both feet. So what were some of those first things that you needed in terms of infrastructure? It sounds like bins and egg cartons and a warm space are those kind of your main yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that was that really was it as as far as like getting into some sort of farming it was pretty you know low-key pretty low capital um for which for farming is like unheard of i would say uh so yes needed a warm space started out in my dad's break room so that was double insulated for noise so that worked out really well um and then I went down to Tyson's and I bought two 18-gallon storage totes and I split my 10,000 crickets in between those two. They were two weeks old and I had no idea how tiny they would be at two weeks old and probably lost at least half of them because I cut the tape too early and didn't have where I was putting them ready kind of thing. Um, I went down to Tyson's and got a 55-pound bag of chicken feed and threw that in there. I went through several different iterations of waterers and things like that. But I started with two bins, next round ended up with four, next round ended up with 16. So I just kept growing and expanding. Um, I suppose the other thing, I bought one of those metal racks at Sam's Club. I think that was like $90 at the time, which in today's money, they're probably 160 if not more. But um, so yeah, it was really, really, I'm pretty sure the first egg cartons I used somebody had saved them up for some sort of art project and so they gave them to me for free like it was really low uh low input sort of start out and my my first 10,000 two-week-old crickets with overnight shipping I believe cost me $140 so it was like I said pretty low capital intensity relative to other forms of agriculture yeah, that you uh, don't have a lot of gates or uh, penning or <laughs> those types. Of no, things. not on a large scale anyway. Small scale, yes. Large scale, no. Yes, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what products did you, the same products you have now, are those what you were started out with at the beginning? Or did you start off with a single product line? Or what did you do in terms of developing your actual product? To sell? You know, in retrospect, starting with one product line probably would have been the way to go. But of course... If at this point in the story, you have to know that is not what I did. Um, yeah, do it Yes, all. exactly. No, I, so I had essentially the same three product lines. 
I very rarely had cricket powder for sale just because <clears throat> my volume of crickets that I was raising was too small to be able to justify it. Um, I did not start making like my cricket bars. I started off making them like energy bites, like these little energy balls. Um, and then I don't, I don't know why I decided that that was the way to go instead of making bars from a convenience factor. Like bars are just so much more convenient, uh, so much easier to package, all of the above. But so I started off with those and I had so many different flavors of those. And that was just me throwing things against the wall and seeing what stuck kind of deal. So I had those and then I had, I think I started with four flavors of roasted crickets. And of those four flavors, two of them still are still like flavors that I have. The other two, I think they're like iterations of those flavors that still exist, but they just needed some improvement uh, on their actual flavor profile. So yeah, like I said, would have made way more sense to start off with just one, but um, I guess I'm, I'm kind of glad that I didn't. And, and the reason for that is I think if I would have started and focused on one, I would have said, oh, I need to do something with the cricket powder. Like it needs to be either a cookie or a bar. Like people are not gonna eat the whole cricket. And so I wouldn't have done the whole roasted cricket which today accounts for 71% of my total sales are the whole cricket. So anybody who tells me that, you know, people just aren't ready for that, they're not going not gonna to buy those, like, if I would have listened to them, I'd be missing out on majority of my sales. So. Mm -hmm. So are you still doing farmer's markets? And then do you also have um, sales in, I know I saw that you have some in local grocery stores. What's your distribution like at this point? Yeah. Place? So I do the Des Moines farmer's market very, very occasionally, uh, very occasionally. I do some other shows across the Midwest. I do the Iowa state fair. Obviously that's a really big one. Everybody knows about that one. Um, I do some big shows. Like there's one out in Omaha, west of Omaha called junk stock. That one's a really big one. Um, I do a few in Eastern Iowa, like around Christmas time, those tend to be pretty good, but it, most of my farmer's markets, they just, I do them, like I said, occasionally, um, I do have some really loyal farmer's market, uh, you know, regulars, customers that anytime I'm there, they are absolutely there and really excited to see me, but I've slowly phased that out as my wholesale and my online have picked up. So another really big development for me and the whole timeline of this business was in 2019. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, my boyfriend and I are renovating this 140 year old building on Main Street in Collins. How we ended up getting to Collins in the first place was that I ended up buying a building on Main Street there. It's a little tiny building, about 700 square feet in the summer of 2019 because I need a licensed food processing facility to be able to sell online and sell in grocery stores. Uh, up until then, I was just a exempt from home food business that was restricted to only selling at farmer's markets or direct to consumer, um, that sort of thing. So it was really limited in where I could sell and how I could sell and all of those things. So got that licensed in November of 2019. So then at that point, I, like I said, could have an online store. I could sell in grocery stores and that ended up being 
like the best decision I could have ever made for my business because going into 2020 with it being what it was where, you know, prior my business was so heavily reliant on in-person farmers markets, live events, all of those things. I was at least able to pivot into some somewhat more of an online or less face-to-face kind of a model. So by the end of 2020, I was on the shelves of 19, I think, 19 stores in probably maybe three or four states. Majority of them were here in Iowa and had uh, shipped to, I would say at that point, had probably shipped to 35 states. And that was with no, no advertising other than word of mouth. That was some built up demand of people who had found me before I was able to sell online and were just excited that I could finally sell to them kind of deal. Um, And then 2021 was a really big year because I got into the warehouse of Hy-Vee. So um, Hy-Vee has 240 stores in seven states, soon to be, I think, 10 states with the new expansion that they're working on. Um, So I was part of their, they have a local brand program and I was part of the first wave of that and so I got my first warehouse order in July of that year and that initially they brought on 39 additional stores in addition to the ones that I had already gotten into Um, I think by the end of 2021 I was in I want to say 88 stores in probably close to 20 something states now I'm probably in 150 in 25 states. Uh, so that has steadily grown. The other thing, so a lot of a lot of out-of-state stores and things like that are finding me on online wholesale, uh, wholesale, I don't know what you call them. It's called FAIR. If you've ever heard of the website called FAIR, it's a wholesale, wholesale marketplace. That's the word I'm looking for. So it's an online wholesale marketplace. Um, I have one store in Charleston, South Carolina. It's a candy store, and they sell... Last year, they sold, like, 600 bags of crickets at their little candy store, which is kind of wild, and they love them. But uh, so that's been really cool. The other... The things that have really developed in... So I doubled doubled every year from 2018 until 20... Through 2021. Doubled my sales every year. Wanted to do that last year. The first half of last year, it really looked like that was going to be possible. And then things really started slowing down. And I think slowing down economy-wise, people started tightening the belt loops and that kind of thing as the year started to end. And my my year end actually ended up slower than I anticipated. Still ended up growing by double digits again. So that was pretty cool uh, to still see that through. And we got a few really exciting projects that came through. I started white labeling for a few companies that reached out to me and they wanted to bring on some sort of a cricket line, but they didn't want to, and they wanted them to be U.S. grown crickets, which is really uncommon. Most brands that already exist are either importing their crickets out of Southeast Asia or Canada. Um, So having U.S. grown crickets, like I'm one of the only sources for that. So... A few different things on that. One of them is an Amazon brand, which they've sold so many crickets, can't believe it, um, in a really short amount of time, which is really cool. Uh, But so that is all of the reasons that I I need another larger cricket barn because uh, I am tapped out as far as as growth goes on my own in the space that I have. So the new cricket barn will be roughly four and a half, five times 
the size of my current one and the grow setup will look a little bit different but it's a uh, yeah yeah you're uh growing in leaps and bounds <laughs> for yeah cricket funds um are you the still kind of the one doing everything or have you got staff now like that sounds like you're doing a ton of different yes things. so I I have one part-time employee that helps me on the farm side um with the new barn with the new setup I think even though we are are expanding so exponentially in terms of square footage and production capacity and all of that um we're going to more of an open grow method so there won't be bins like i think it'll just be like crickets in a room <laughs> just kind of running around um so that will actually significantly reduce the labor demands so i am forecasting that it'll only take one additional part-time employee to be able to handle that the new barn even with the expanded production so that's pretty exciting when we get our 140 year old building done and renovated um so the upstairs it's a two-story brick upstairs we're putting an apartment in which is where we're going to live and then downstairs is going to be like our offices and shipping and distribution so i will a combination of more crickets and having an office space will probably result in at least another one to two employees on that side as well um Right now, I'm definitely in the grind of like, I know I need more people to do more things, but uh, it's a putting the stepping stones in place so that we can do that successfully um, to really, and, and be able to justify it. So that is probably 2023 um, focus and goals is really just, you know, and it's funny because 2021 was was kind of a breakthrough year like that was my first year like really in the black solidly making a profit um and then 2022 was was on like i said on track to be just a doorbuster year and then it really slowed down at the end which is fine like i i'm a little bit bummed about it but you know anytime i do have to remind myself anytime you can do double digit growth and and have sustained at least that for you know four years in a row you're doing something right um but it, 2019 was a big building year for larger supply, you know, um, putting in the processing facility, all of those things. It was a really growing pains year. And I naively, or pretend, I don't know if naive is the right, right word. I don't think I'm naive to it. I think I just kind of wanted to pretend like that was gonna be my last really like painful building year. Um, but that's just not the way it works in business. So I think 2023 is gonna be another one of those painful building years, but it's really gonna set us up to, you know, catapult in 24, 25 and beyond. So so I know that we've heard a lot about um eating insects as being a environmentally positive way to get more protein um but how do you deal with getting people to eat bugs yeah i know it for myself and i know i know this is ridiculous like i know it is but i have this vision of getting little legs stuck in my teeth and the idea just and i mean i'll generally eat anything but the idea of little antenna or legs or whatever that uh, so how can I get past this? Because I am I am solidly pro eating insects for a number of reasons, but you know, 
uh, sell me on it. Has yes, the, so that I can order them and then not just feed them to my kids. <laughs> the mental hurdle. Well, I have one question for you. Do you eat shrimp and lobster? I don't. I'm allergic to shellfish. Okay, so. But I've. I've traveled to Mexico and eaten roasted grasshoppers quite happily, but they're ground up. And somehow it being an ethnic thing rather than something that I am ordering myself seems. All right. Fair enough. So I'll just have to embrace it. (laughs) Okay. So it's actually really interesting. I'm glad to know that you were able to eat them in Mexico and had no problems. um, Because typically people who are allergic to shellfish may, and I may is not the correct word, might, um, have a reaction to crickets because most people don't realize it but uh shellfish so cretaceous shellfish shrimp lobster crab uh, crawdads all of those things and insects are both arthropods so this is where like i said my science terms like i get yelled at one time family is apparently not what an arthropoda is i can't remember i think it's genus no idea anyways um All I'm saying is that they're related. Uh, And so the potential crossover for the allergy is the chitin in the exoskeleton. So that's C-H-I-T-I-N. Most people don't realize, but chitin is the second most abundant biopolymer in the world behind cellulose. And that's because not only is it in insects, which are are incredibly pervasive, um, it is in shellfish, and it is also in mushrooms. So um, chitin is in a lot of different things. So I would say if you were allergic to shellfish and mushrooms, probably should avoid insects because more than likely you are gonna have some sort of a reaction. But um, there's one thing I've learned over these past years of, of doing the insect thing. Shellfish allergies are really weird and really inconsistent. Some people will only be allergic to shrimp. They'll only be allergic to lobster. They'll only be allergic to uh, seawater living shellfish, and that has something to do with the iodine, but they're totally fine with fresh water. Typically, those people are fine with eating insects, but I digress. Back to getting you to eat crickets. So now that I can't rationalize with you, like, you know, you eat these sea bugs already, so why wouldn't you just eat the land bugs as well um i i would ask you why 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 do you eat what you eat in general have you really thought about like the grossness or the ick factor of anything you eat like do you think about the fact that you know when you eat a steak and you get steak stuck in your teeth kind of thing like that's a piece of muscle that you know is just sticking you know we just don't think about it we don't rationalize it um i at the Iowa State Fair, if you've ever been, I'm upstairs in the Ag Building, and across from me is the um, the honey, like the Iowa Honey Growers Association. So they, you know, sell honey lemonade. They sell these honey sticks. My favorite thing to do is when little kids come around with a honey stick, and they stop at my booth and they go, "Ugh, these are bugs! Like, why would I ever eat that?" And I go. Oh. This is really good. Um, do you, you're eating honey? And they're like, yeah, it's delicious. I'm like, do you know what it is? <laughs> and they're like, do you know, I'm like, do you know where it comes from? And they're like, yeah, bees. And I'm like, yeah, but how? And they're like, I don't know. And you can see the wheels kind of start to turn. And I say, 
you know, it's just, it's bee puke. Like they go and they take it from the flower and they come back and they puke it up and you eat it. And they, their eyes get like wide as a plate kind of thing. And they look at me and they go, oh, I'm never eating honey again. And then, you know, they walk two steps and they're sucking on their honey stick again. So I think a lot of it is we just don't think about how weird what we eat is. And that's okay. But um, what I always tell people with, because I, what I sample are my roasted crickets. So it's the whole cricket. You are going in. You are going for it. The eyes are still looking at you. Sometimes the legs are attached. You know, all of it. But what it's going to taste like is a cross between a sunflower seed and a corn nut. If a sunflower seed and a corn nut had a baby, that's what a roasted cricket tastes like. So I find that if I can talk to people long enough about, you know, what does it taste like? Have you really thought about why you eat what you eat? Um, here are some benefits. And I promise this is what it's going to taste like. Uh, typically, I can be pretty convincing. That being said, I can be that much more convincing when it is a crowd of two, three, four, five people that everybody else is there thinking about it and somebody just goes, yeah, I'll do it. And there's a, a big monkey see, monkey do sort of a you know, advantage to that. And that is really helpful. Like social pressure is a thing, whether people want to admit it or not. And so for something like this, Having the support of a crowd helps for sure, but uh, I find the longer that I can talk to someone about it, the more likely I am to get them to just go for it. And worst case scenario, I can sell them a cricket bar where it's got ground up and mixed in and they can't see it. And I would dare say you would never, never, ever know that there were crickets in it, you know, and then eventually we just get them on down the trail. And I, I get that I'm also not going to convince everyone I'm okay with that. Uh, there's foods I definitely don't like and I think are disgusting. Um, so. Are kids more willing to try than adults? Like if you're at something like a state fair, do you get the kids? It depends. Um, that was something that was actually really cool. So this was my second year at the state fair, 2022 was. Um, and I had quite a few kids, families, um, stop up and say, this was the only place you were on the list of, of two things. And like one was to get a corn dog and the other was like, they wanted a cricket. Like those were the two things that they wanted at the state fair. They didn't care about anything else. So that's really neat. Um, so sometimes, yes, the kids are willing. I will say it's actually been really interesting. Um, sampling so many people, from so many walks of life and so many different situations, it's actually given given me a really interesting insight into like parenting and trying to get kids to try something new. I can tell you almost immediately by the reaction, body language interaction of the parent with the whole situation as to whether that kid is gonna be like down to try it or not. If the parent's freaking out or the parent's like trying to force them to do it, which I absolutely hate. It is like my pet peeve. Do not force your child to eat something. Like, don't do that. Um, it is a, a hard no for me. Um, but if the parent is, is uh, like I said, freaking out about it, the kid's going to freak out about it. If the parent's totally calm about it, the kid's going to be like, yeah, whatever. Little, like little, little kids, say two years old or younger, you just hand it to them. They just stick it in their mouth. They don't 
they don't think twice about it. Um, so it, yes, in some ways, kids are, are more willing. The really interesting observation that I have seen over these past couple years, and this is like tens of thousands of samples handed out. It is about three to one women to men, all ages. So little girls all the way up to old, old men. That whole spectrum in between, women are three times more likely to try that cricket. And if you would have asked me that when I started, I would have said, oh, my target market's gonna be, you know, 18 to 35 year old males that like doing outdoorsy adventure things. And I found that those are the least adventurous eaters of anyone. I don't care what anybody says, like I have data to back it up kind of thing. And my theory on that is, you know, traditionally speaking, obviously there are exceptions to every single rule, but traditionally speaking, women are the gatekeepers of nutrition into the home, into the family. So we are more likely to try something new before, you know, we're gonna give it to our family. We wanna try it out first, therefore we're the more adventurous eater. Um, like I said, exceptions to every rule on that, but I would say men are definitely not as adventurous as everybody thinks that they are. At least not with their palate. In a peer group though? What's that? If you've got a group, of, if you've got a group of men though, and one try it, is that when that uh, dynamic changes a oh, little bit? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, and don't get me wrong, you know, if it is, even if it is a husband and wife sort of situation, and the wife tries it, and you know, kind of just jabs at her husband, and is like, sometimes that'll get him, but most of the time he's like, absolutely not. So, but yes, you get a group of guys, and there's one that won't do it that starts to weigh on them pretty, pretty quick. So. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about nutrition. What are the nutritional benefits of eating? Crickets? Yeah. So crickets uh, are 64% protein. They are a source of iron, calcium, B12, omega-6s and omega-3s. Although some people don't think of them as animals, technically they are. So they have all nine essential amino acids in a bioavailable form, making them a complete protein like any other animal protein. Good source of magnesium, prebiotic fiber, all sorts of things. Now you're not gonna get that all from one cricket. I'm sorry, that's, everybody's like, oh, I got my protein for the day if they eat one cricket. Um, one serving is about 90 to 100 crickets. So it's a kind of a large-ish handful. Um, and in that there's about seven grams of protein, so. So your powder that you make, would that be something you'd use in shakes, baking? What kind of applications do people use it Yeah, for? good question. So my powder makes up the least amount of my sales, like proportionally overall, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, I hand somebody a whole cricket, they know they're just gonna eat it. It's gonna be kind of crunchy. I hand somebody a cricket bar. It's like any other granola bar. They know how to eat that. I hand somebody a bag of cricket powder and they kind of look at me and go, I don't know what to do with this. And I say, okay, perfect, that's fine. I tell people the way to think about it is a high protein flax meal. So it's something you can mix in just about anything, but you're never gonna take a spoonful of it, throw it in your mouth and be like, wow, that was delicious. I should do that again. Like it's just, it's not something that you eat on its own per se but it mixes really well into other things. So smoothies, you can bake with it, but you can't substitute it one for one. You can put it in just about any baking recipe, substitute it up to 25% of whatever flour is called for. Um, 
you can put it in sauces you can put it in dips so hummus like all sorts of things like that uh, it mixes in fairly easily but you need to do the one thing i say is is it's not like a traditional protein powder like a whey or something like that because it's not soluble so you can't just add water and shake it up that would be pretty terrible but if you have something with some viscosity so think like a smoothie or something like that super easy to mix in very cool so as a parenting podcast we're always curious about what farming parents have done to encourage or sometimes discourage their kids from um, being involved in agriculture so what did your parents do that made it possible for you to be part of this industry? You said that, you know, your original plan was to never come back. Um, and yet <laughs> when you flew back home, the door was open. So what role did your parents play in coming back to agriculture? Yeah, well, and I, I think that because they never forced it on me and I came to it on my own, uh, I think had they forced it on me or even, you know, growing up forced me to work within the farm which they never did you know I have an older brother he's four years older than me he was very involved in the farm growing up he really liked it um, he would be the one that would make sense to come back and take over the operation but he is an f-16 pilot in the air force so he is slightly busy um, currently living in Japan with his family so that's just not really a little far away for harvest. yeah yeah um so that is not really necessarily a viable option sort of a deal and that's okay but it's um my parents have never been like you need to come back and do this you, you know you need to come back and and be a part of this and they're still not that way you know even as they get older and my dad kind of starts to try and look for an exit plan they're not going the pressure is not on me to take over this operation um the encouragement has always been go blaze your own trail like that's kind of what you do anyways like just go do it like we'll support you in whatever way you can Obviously, they have supported me tremendously. You know, I made my first crickets in my mom's kitchen. I was raising them at my dad's shop. My second barn is going to be in a building that they own. Like, absolutely, they are doing everything they can to, to help me, you know, blaze this path, if you will. Um, and so I think that was the best thing they could have ever done because had they forced me into it as a kid, like, I just was not interested. And truthfully, like, with the traditional ag stuff being in track like that is just ugh. I, ugh. it's one of those things like my boyfriend I he is a landscaper and he loves what he does and he loves all the equipment and like he will do his market research quote unquote in the mornings looking at dump trucks and dump trailer like that is his thing he loves it and he'll tell me all the different features of all the different things and I don't care but I'm glad you do um but I can tell you all the things about crickets and I can tell you all the things about building this business. And so that that's what makes it really interesting to me. And so I'm really thankful that, like I said, my parents absolutely, you know, gave me so much opportunity and continue, continue to give me opportunity, but they let me do it in my own way kind of a thing. So um, I'm super thankful for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What did you love about growing up? on a farm when you were yeah little. what did I love um I think in retrospect you know I feel like as a country kid like you always sort of 
are envious of some of the things that the town kids have. Like, we didn't have cable. Like, we didn't, you know, we couldn't just, like, ride our bikes. The neighbors, I mean, I did, even though the neighbor is, like, half a mile away. I would literally ride my bike on the gravel. But, you know, just... Yeah, you had to hope that the closest neighbor was someone you actually got exactly, along with. Exactly, exactly, yes. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I think, you know, you see in the movies, kids growing up, like, these, like, biker gangs rolling through neighborhoods. And, and that you know, that just was never... That was something we envied because that was what we saw, but it wasn't until now that I like really necessarily appreciate life out here and the things that we got to do. And, um, you know, I really appreciate now, especially as I'm building multiple businesses, managing multiple projects and all of that stuff, you know, I get a lot of people that are like, well, how did you wind up an entrepreneur? And I'm like, well, if I look at the way I grew up, I didn't have a choice. Like I, I look at, you know, the way my parents have run this operation, the different businesses they've run, like all of those things, like I didn't have a choice. I was exposed to it at such a young age. Um, and I always tell people too, that, you know, if you're going to get a degree that you're not going to use, a finance degree is pretty useful as well. So I just, um, I, I'm really thankful for all of it, for all of the things I was exposed to, for the aspects of, of, you know, running a business, the seeing my parents and how hard they worked to build what they've built from scratch. Like all of those things have been absolutely invaluable for me. Um, and I think have given me a, a certain level of patience that I think uh, possibly is missed in today's pop culture and the entrepreneur world. I think everybody sees these like overnight, you know, crypto billionaires or whatever that we now see all falling apart. But like everybody thinks that it's supposed to be like that. And it's not, you know, it, it it's not, <laughs> and it's not glamorous like that. And that's not saying that what you're building isn't important and what you're building isn't meaningful. It's just, everybody leaves that part out of the story, but like I got a front row experience to all of that. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't skip the hard no. work part. No, you can't. So. So Shelby, do you find that it's easier to talk with bankers or real estate agents or whatever, since you have a finance degree, do you get taken more seriously than you think you might otherwise? I do. Um, and I've always said that, uh, as much as I disliked my first career, it allows me to walk into certain rooms and command a certain amount of respect that, um, that right or wrong, I wouldn't get if I did not have it. Um, but then it also, in terms of, of building businesses, um, because I, that's one thing that I have figured out since I left the finance industry and have started doing all these things and, um, and, you know, have helped, have helped my boyfriend build his landscaping business. And now we are in this renovation thing and all of these, like, I like building things like that part. That's the fun part to me. Um, that's why, you know, a lot of people who go into the cricket industry when they first start, they go into the live feeder market. It's a very lucrative market, uh, very well established market. I've had no interest in that market whatsoever. I know the money's there. And like, I know that would have been the smart way to do it faster way to profitability, all of the things. But in the crickets for human consumption, that's a brand new market that you get to build from scratch. How many times do you get to do that? Like that, to me, that was just always the appeal. And I've realized that over time that that's the appeal. And um, 
So yes, going into conversations with bankers like that, we just had to go have a conversation with the banker over the renovation project. We um, received a $100,000 community catalyst grant from the Iowa Economic Development that typically most of the state and county and all of those grants are what are called reimbursement grants. So they don't give you the money until after you've spent it, um, which puts you in a little bit of a predicament, unless you can have a relationship with a bank kind of thing. Um, so we had to go talk to the bank. And this was the first time, so again, my boyfriend and I, this was the first, everything on that side is in his business's name, so it's all through his bank. And he's like trying to communicate these things to me. And he used to be a PE teacher and now he's a landscaper. And so finance is like not his language at all. (laughs) And so he's trying to communicate things. And finally, I just said, just take me to the bank and I will, we'll talk about it. And it was what would have been, you know, a half an hour conversation. And I still don't even know what would have come out of it with him ended up being a five minute conversation of, oh yeah, here, yep, we can do this. No problem. Um, So it's definitely an advantage that way. It makes me feel more confident going into some of these situations um, because I know I can speak that language. But, uh, so yes, it's been very useful. (laughs) One question we ask all of our guests is, if you were going to dominate a category at a county fair, what would it be? (laughs) And categories can be real or made up up to ensure that you win. Um, I think the Story County Fair needs a cricket race that like I can facilitate, you know, they do the pig races. So like, I feel like we could just, all it would take are some little plastic tubes, stick a cricket in one end and see who gets to the other end first. I think that'd be a big. Are your crickets really fast? Have you, uh, have you ever um, uh, tested them against other people? I haven't, but you know what? I, I think that I probably have a slight advantage, <laughs> potentially. I have a few more to choose yeah. from than most people. Yes, yeah, for sure. You could do some trial trials at home. For sure, we can get into the selective breeding and make sure that we have a good line <laughs> yeah, of, of right. race crickets. Yeah, this bin over here is just for the really exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, Shelby, I know you know as as Iowans, we're big on basketball. I know you said you you know played college ball. Inch for inch, you know, uh, accounting for the the size differential. Can you jump higher than your crickets can? <laughs> no, I think relative to their relative to their body length, size, whatever, um, they are like one of the probably one of the furthest jumping animals ever. I would guess. I'm pretty sure. So they're the the basketball players of the the bug. They, world. you know, I think they're probably would get popped for performance enhancing drugs if that were the case or at least suspected of given their natural abilities so i feel like having more than two legs might be considered an unfair it might be but i'm pretty sure that they they only use their back legs to jump so i don't know if we get that excuse (laughs) they're maybe not very good at dribbling though so probably not they can't have it all they don't have, yeah, they don't have all the skills. So we're going to move ahead into our cussing and discussing segment for our listeners. If you want to cuss and discuss with us, you can submit it at our SpeakPipe, which is at speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language. Leave us a voice memo there, or you can always email us at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com and we will read it out for you. So Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? 
I heard this the other day, Arlene, and it made me so mad that I wrote it down on an actual post-it note and stuck it okay. to my desk so I wouldn't All forget right. about it. It's stuck to your computer. When people say, oh, you have a good baby, or oh, that's such a good baby because they sleep and they're calm and they're, they're babies. Just chill out. There's, it's not like the bad babies are like robbing people at gunpoint and you know <laughs> yeah, carjacking they're people. They're, yeah. They don't sleep well. Just chill out. It's a baby. Just, I would love to never hear the phrase good baby again. Because yeah. it's not it's like that baby's one. getting a Nobel Peace Prize or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a baby. Right. Okay, yeah, just chill. Here's your baby award. Yeah, because you slept longer than the other baby. Yeah. And then when yes. someone asks here's you, your... do you have a good baby? And by definition, they're not. <laughs> then what do you say? No, no, I've, I've got the wrong kind. <laughs> I don't have a good one. Exactly. But I like like no, anyway. Do you know how much bail money we've spent already? And the kid's only <laughs> six months old. Like, yeah. it just... I know you were talking about, you know, having the baby who can't go out in a barn. Like, mm -hmm. that's not a bad baby. That's a baby that can't go out in a barn. That's... <laughs> Without ugh. freaking out. Ugh. Anyway. All right, Shelby, what do you have to cuss and discuss? Ooh. Um, what do I have to cuss and discuss? Renovation projects are hard, and reclaimed wood is really good in theory. But in practice, it kind of mm. sucks. <laughs> that's we. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing we. So, 1882 built has the original. When we bought it, the first floor had two drop ceilings in it because one's not enough. We need to have two drop ceilings. We took those out to reveal the 12 foot ceiling, and it had the original beadboard up there that we couldn't leave up, unfortunately. So we decided to take it all down, and then we had to move it all by hand twice this weekend. And so, because we're going to make something really cool out of it, is what I keep telling myself. But now I think I'm just yeah. mad that I moved it twice to be moved a third time. Now you, now you really have to do something yes. cool with it, eventually, yes. someday. Yep. Yeah. Yes. We did a renovation of our old farmhouse, and our contractor started out trying to save a lot of the, the molding. And then eventually he was like, we're going to rebuild molding that looks like old molding. And it all went in the dumpster because it, as, as it's coming out, it's cracking and it's got those old square nails in it. And yeah, there just wasn't anything salvageable at that point. Yes. I feel like with a lot of renovation projects, the perceived coolness of a project is like inversely proportionate to how much of a pain in the ass it's going to be it's just you know like the project will just explode the cooler you think that the outcome will be i've never had a project where it seemed like a great idea and it actually just was a great idea and it went smoothly. it went smoothly yeah and, <laughs> yeah the smoothly yeah. part is the... i can sure to look great though whatever it is it and that <laughs> yes i can confirm and I can also confirm it is gonna, it's going to be beautiful when it's done. Also, one of my mantras right now. Yeah, you have to hang on yes. to that, right? Through through all. You'll the enjoy it that much more. Yes. So, Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? So, mine is based on this morning's activities, whereby you miss the bus by like a minute, and then that adds a big chunk of extra work to your day because like 
then it meant that I couldn't take the kids who were already dressed in their snow gear directly to school because their bus ride is about half an hour long. So then you, but you don't want them to get undressed. So then we were just outside for a while and then we had to scrape off the car because it had gotten parked outside because my daughter took the other vehicle to school today. And so then we had to scrape that off and get it warmed up. And yeah, so a one, one minute delay this morning added another 40 minutes of work, so. That was just not the way I wanted to start out, but everybody got to school. So it happened. <laughs> so That's, Shelby. Yeah. <laughs> Shelby, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and telling us all about your business. And we're so excited to see all of what you have to come in 2023 and beyond. Um, if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Online? Yeah. So if you are in for the cricket shenanigans, I am on Jiminy, Jiminy Crickets. So G-Y-M-N-E-A-T-C-R-I-C-K-E-T-S. Some variation of that across Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, if you really want to know like the nitty gritty about raising crickets, if you think that you want to start your own little cricket farm, uh, check me out on YouTube. It is youtube.com slash Shelby Smith crickets. Or if you just search Jiminy crickets or Shelby Smith crickets, you will find it. If you are interested in keeping up with the 214 main project, maybe renovations is more your thing. Um, we are on uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, all the 214 main project. Um, so yeah, I'm all over the internet. You can find me if you need me. And if you are interested in buying crickets, best way to do that is jimineatcrickets.com. And that's again, just G-Y-M-N-E-A-T-C-R-I-C-K-E-T-S. Thank you so much. And we will include all those in the show notes too. So people can find it super easy. Awesome. All right, thanks again. You're Shelby. welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy this show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.